Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guy. Uh, it's just me. This week, I'm Scott Powell. Father Peter Musset is out of town. He will be back next week. But um, I'm recording alone, which is always a little bit of an awkward thing. I'm staring at an empty chair with all the fancy equipment and headphones, um, which always feels strange setting up just for me. But we're here together, which is wonderful. So anyway, I hope you guys are having a happy summer. I guess it's not technically summer yet till the end of the month, but it's beautiful here in Colorado. I hope it is wherever you are. I am up uh, a lot of the summer at Camp Foytiwa, the ministry my wife and I run, um, leading young people to understand Jesus Christ and his church through the outdoors, and we're really blessed to do it. Uh, Father Peter is enjoying a well-earned vacation, and uh, like I said, I hope you're enjoying your summer as well. But it is today, or at least what we're going to be talking about today, is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. So we're one week uh, before Corpus Christi. I was actually going back through the catalog, and again, three years ago, I was kind of uh, wanted to see if, uh, if a rerun was a possibility today. Um, but we didn't actually have this feast three years ago. So because of uh, the lateness of Easter that year, everything kind of got smushed together. So we uh, have a little bit more time to stretch out, so to speak. So we're going to be talking about the Holy Trinity today, which is one of the most confusing thing in all of uh, Christian theology. And the readings, while not really explaining it, they give us some really, uh, I think, fascinating insights into it. So our first reading for this Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity is coming from the book of Proverbs uh, chapter 8, verse 22 through 31. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 8, chapters 4 through 5, or sorry, verses 4 through 5, 6 through 7, and 8 through 9. Then our second reading is coming from the, the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And our gospel is coming from John, chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Smack in the middle of what is called the farewell discourse as Jesus uh, has been sort of explaining to his disciples um, who are not fully getting it, what is about to happen here. So, all right, lots of things to say. Um, it's just me, so there's no one to sort of um, speak back to me or interrupt me, so to speak. Um, so this will probably be a, a slightly shorter podcast than usual, but we'll find out. We'll see how long I am today. But a couple things to say about the the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, Proverbs is a really fascinating book. It falls into the category of what's called the wisdom literature, uh, because it actually speaks about very wise thing. But the book itself is kind of funny. I don't know if you guys have spent any time in the book of Proverbs. Um, it's sort of, it's like the Psalms in the sense, well, they're right next to each other, so there's proximity. But it's kind of like the book of Psalms in that it's never really, it was never really meant to be sort of read straight through, just kind of this rote way beginning of the end. Um, the Proverbs are more like a, a list or a gathering, a compilation of wise sayings, right? And it's kind of like how you wouldn't just read through a book of famous quotations like cover to cover. That's not really the right way to do it. Um, the Psalms are similar in that you can just kind of crack open to the Psalms and you can find this moment of salvation history and song and it can bring you to this particular place or inspire you or whatever else. The Psal- the, the Proverbs rather, are kind of like that. You're, you're meant to be able to kind of pick up in the middle or wherever it is and sort of uh, get an insight into the wisdom of God. Um, but to understand what that means, and, and kind of it's because of that, the scholars really don't know what to do with this book or how to kind of compartmentalize it because it's not a strict narrative. It really is a gathering of these sayings that sort of seem to have come about throughout the course of much of salvation history. Some of these things are attributed to Solomon himself and kind of his wisdom, but not all of them. Some of them are by you know his descendants and other people compiled them later on. So it's kind of a, a cross salvation history and this this gathering of stuff, which is actually kind of cool. 
Uh, but a word about the word wisdom before we kind of go any deeper. And I, I, I know Father Peter and I have talked about this in the podcast in other ways because we've talked about other parts of the wisdom literature. But the word that we we translate in English as wisdom, a lot of us know the Greek version of that word, uh, which is the word sophia. So if you've heard the word philosophy, philo is the Greek word for love, right? Um, and sophia is wisdom. So philosophia means the love of wisdom. Um, or the love of, of knowledge or something like that. No, knowledge isn't quite right. It's the love of wisdom, which um, it still doesn't quite define what wisdom is. So philosophia being the love of this thing doesn't quite tell us what it is. And I think we get a really deep understanding of the meaning of this if we actually go back to the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for this, and again, if you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you've probably heard this before, but the Hebrew word for wisdom is the word chokmah. Chokmah. So H-O-K-M-A is kind of the English rendering. And chokmah isn't some abstract idea of thought or a thought process or something like that. But the basic meaning of the word is actually skill. Um, so, you know, not really a textbook knowledge, not like I read, uh, you know, a book on geography. Now I have the skill of geography or something like that. But it's more the word really means more of a sort of an artistic craftsmanship. Right. Someone who is a woodworker or a metallurgist or, you know, a gardener, perhaps. Right. Some sort of a craftsmanship or a skill. Um, and the idea is just as wisdom is sort of revealed through the artist's craftsmanship, um, you can see how skilled or not skilled the artist is based on his art or his sculpting or his woodworking or whatever it is. The idea is so too is God's wisdom manifest in what he makes, what he does, what he creates. And so the Jewish people sort of saw God's wisdom as the way things are looking out at creation, looking at what he has made, the good, the beauty of creation, even salvation history itself, right? The fact that Moses and Noah and David and all these guys do things that foreshadow and point ahead to Jesus actually show God's artistry, his chokmah over even creation itself, which is kind of beautiful. So so creation or wisdom literature rather kind of uh, derives its, its foundation, its structure, its form from creation itself, which is um, sort of a departure from the structure of salvation history per se. It's not strict narrative. Rather, it kind of transcends salvation history. It says, okay, here is what God has done in the world. Here is the mode of revelation that he's used, and here's how he's worked through human beings in this particular nation. But wisdom kind of transcends it and goes outside of it and above it and says, let's look at the beautiful tapestry that God has actually built, which again, it's kind of why a lot of scholars don't really know what to do with it, right? But in a lot of ways, wisdom and the wisdom literature and what Proverbs is up to is giving us skills for life. Chokmah for being able to read the created world and understand how to move and to operate in it, which is really beautiful. And so it talks about God's artistry, God's craftsmanship, God's wisdom, for lack of a better word. And where we're sort of dropped in is in, I think, one of the most profoundly important proverbs for understanding the Christian life. And really, I, I guess, in the way the church is looking at it, understanding the Trinity. So it says this. This is in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. This is where you're getting on Sunday. It says, thus says the wisdom of God. And note, it, it doesn't say, thus says God. It says, thus says the wisdom of God. Because throughout the book, wisdom is often personified. It's made kind of into a person, which is fascinating, right? 
So wisdom personified. It says, thus says the wisdom of God, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his ways, the forerunner of his prodigies long ago. From the old I was poured forth, at the first before the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no fountains or springs of water, before the mountains were settled into place, before the hills, I was brought forth. Yet as the earth and its fields were not made, nor were the first clods of the world. When the Lord established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the vault over the face of the deep, when he made the firm skies above, when he fixed the foundations of the earth, when he set the sea at its limit so that the water shouldn't transgress his command, then I was beside him as his craftsman which is really interesting. And I was his delight day by day, playing with him. I love that language. I was actually playing with the Lord God as he created everything, playing on the surface of the earth, and I found delight in the human race. Now, the reason I think this is such an important passage, it's really beautiful and kind of weird, but... Um, John chapter 1. So some of you have, have remember or have studied the gospel of John. In John chapter 1, John actually uses the language of creation here, I'm uh, sorry, of wisdom here to describe Jesus. In his famous prologue when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In him and through him all things were made. All of this stuff. He's clearly he's either borrowing or deep in his recessions of his spiritual memory is this proverb. He knows it. I guarantee he knows this. And he's saying, oh, this personified wisdom that has always been spoke about of old in the Old Testament, that wisdom of God actually took on flesh. And he is Jesus Christ, who is the Logos, right? The word of God who was there at creation. He was there as God was establishing. The word was the mode in which God created and it is Jesus. And now that word, who is the wisdom of God, who has always been described in this kind of personified way, has now taken on flesh, which was interesting. And it's actually, it's interesting. I was, I was studying this uh, earlier today, and I, I noted and I remembered that in the Greek, John chapter 1, so John was originally written in Greek, like the rest of the New Testament. But John chapter 1 is actually written in the neuter sense, the neutral uh, tense. It's not masculine or feminine. It just says, you know, the word it was with God. The word it was God. It doesn't say he or she in the Greek. And until you get to verse 14, when he kind of surprises you and he's like, oh yeah, that word, he became flesh. He became a man. He became a person. And he almost surprises you with the reality and the shockingness of the incarnation. But what I'm so struck by in this passage from Proverbs is not just how beautiful it is that the second person in the Trinity is there present from the beginning and doing all these things. But really what I'm more struck by is the relationship that's described between God the Father and his word, God the Son, Jesus Christ, in that as God is creating, because, you know, I don't know, I teach Genesis a lot and I teach the story of creation a lot, and it's easy for this to become either kind of an abstraction, right? God created the heavens and the earth and the fish and the seas and the stars, and it's this kind of an epic narrative of grandeur of all these things. But then you imagine the word through which he's creating all these things is like playing there as God's son. Not that he has a different age. I mean, that you know, it's, it's this is where we uh, need to anthropomorphize him and we, we put human terms here where our, our minds just fall short of understanding this. But I love the idea of as God is creating and as he is creating in and through his son, 
they're literally playing together. They're enjoying it. They're laughing. They're taking delight in it. They're playing on the surface in the water with the stars. Right? They're, you know, they're playing tennis with the stars or what? I don't know what they're doing. But the way that it's described is sheer delight. And, and sometimes we get so bogged down in how evil and sinful and dark our world is that we need something like the Proverbs and really the wisdom literature in general to remind us that the created world is delightful. It is not just good. It isn't just beautiful and epic and profound, but it delights God. It makes him smile and laugh. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, played as he was creating. And that is awesome to me. It's such a beautiful image. And I know our human minds are trying to grasp at things that are beyond our reach, but that's what the inspired word of God uses to describe these realities to us. And I was just really moved by that. So I'll leave that there for now and we'll, we'll, we'll cruise on to the Psalm. So Psalm 8 talks then on kind of the other side of it. O Lord, our God, how wonderful. Trans- some translations say how majestic, how much majesty is your name in all the earth. And it says, when I behold the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set into place, what is man that you should be mindful of him or the son of man that you should care for him? But that, um, ver- not the versicle, the uh, the response itself, the responsicle, I think that's what Father Peter said to, <laughs> to, to mess with me. I forget what they're called. Anyway, the, the response itself, oh Lord, our God, how wonderful is your, what? Well, the line actually says, how wonderful is your name, your word, your creative power. How wonderful is your relationship with your son? How wonderful is the Holy Trinity? How wonderful is the word, the name, the title that you have, this reality that is the Trinity, which fundamentally, what is the Trinity? The Trinity is this huge terribly confusing, complex theological concept. There's volumes and libraries of books written to try to understand the theological nature of this thing. But at its heart, what every Catholic needs to know is that what the Trinity is, is that God is relationship. God is God the Father, who from eternity speaks forth and loves his Son. God the Son, who is spoken forth and loves his Father. And the love between them is so giddy and delightful, as the Proverbs say, that it too is actually another person, the Holy Spirit. And that who God is, the God who creates, the God who holds all things in being, the God who fashions human beings, is a God who is family, who is relationship, who is communion. And that's why how majestic, how wonderful, how amazing the name of God, the reality of God, the word that is God, as we begin to reflect on it. And that's, I think, what the the proverb kind of makes us do. And, and, and maybe it's different for me because I spend so much of the summer in the mountains where, you know, I try to be as un plugged and disconnected from a lot of things as possible. And I got to run a business, so it's, it's different. But, but being able to see, you know, these college students that we've been working with for the last three weeks and the young people who are coming to camp starting Monday to be in the middle of the summer in this beautiful time when everything has come back to life and there's flowers and there's trees and everything is green to just sit back and unplug your phone and reflect on the majesty of God. And it should ideally bring a smile to your face and to think that actually it brings a smile to God's face. It delights him. And Jesus played in the waters of creation as he was fashioning them. And again, I know, don't be scandalized because it sounds, you know, maybe unholy to talk about God in these terribly human ways. But that's what the Proverbs asks us to reflect on, which in a time in history, quite frankly, you guys, 
I have said it before, but I watch way too much news. I listen to too much talk radio. I read too many comments on social media and news sites, and I get so bogged down in the evil and the corruption and the sin of the world and our culture and our society to look at a mountain and to start laughing out of delight of beauty is I think what all of our world is so desperately in need of. And that's what this Sunday's readings are trying to remind me of. That ultimately the Holy Trinity is not something that can be described in a theological textbook, but something that we can see reflected in the beauty of what the craftsman has crafted. And if you understand the nature of the artist and artistry, then we can begin on some small human level to tap into who the Trinity is. So anyway, that's what I'm getting from the psalm. And I know that's uh, maybe it's not what you're seeing and maybe my mind is just in a particular place, but it's um, it's striking me even as I say it to you and as I read through these things. I'm so taken aback by that line in the Proverbs about the delight that God takes in these things. Again, what better time than the beginning of summer, right? When we should be outside more. It's not oppressively, brutally hot yet like it'll be in August, right? It's still kind of fresh and beautiful and wonderful. So go outside and reflect on the artistry and the craftsmanship that is the work of the Holy Trinity. And then we get the second reading from Romans, which is actually my favorite, um, one of my favorite passages from the Bible. My doctoral dissertation had to do with this passage. But it's Paul's, I actually make the case that in Paul's theology, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is his turning point. Because he's sort of gone on to describe sort of the way things are, the way the world is, all of the problems, the sin that we're dealing with back and forth. How the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome are kind of fighting with each other and, and bad-mouthing one another and looking down on one another. But he's like, that's all a terrible idea because we need to realize the reality that we live in. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have shalom. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the whole story of humanity is that we were created and fashioned in delight by the word who is God, who delights in us, who laughs at the beauty of us. And he says, I want to love you and I want you to enter into the relationship that is God. And what do we say? Well, we say, no, we reject you. We don't want that. We want to do the very thing that you've asked us not to do. We want to be gods because we don't want you as God. We reject the relationship that God has offered us. That's the story of Adam and Eve, original sin. Maybe it out of fear or pride or whatever else. That's what happens. And so how does God, who is communion, seek to rectify this? Well, the God who is communion, the word that created all things and was there delighting in us, takes on human flesh, like John said. And God becomes a human being to reconcile human beings back to God, which means we actually have access again to the relationship. These things that were the delight of our existence at the beginning of humanity, we now have access, which is exactly what Paul says. So we have shalom, we have peace, we have reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access We have access to all this stuff, this reality, this family, this relationship, this reality. We get to meet the artist. And we don't just get to meet the artist. We get to be in relationship with the artist, which is really cool. It's like we get to go backstage at the gallery. We get to be like, yeah, I know that guy. All these amazing works of art that everyone's so fascinated by, I know the guy that made them. It's pretty cool. That's actually what we have access to. This grace in which we stand. I had a, uh, a teacher who described that passage as, as though we're standing in a, sl- a snow globe. You ever held a snow globe before and like shook it up and all the little snow particles will fall? 
It's like we're standing in the snow globe of grace and there's little snowflakes of grace literally all around us. But we're so blind to it, we can't see it most of the time. But Paul is saying, if you realize you're in the middle of this snow globe filled with grace, all you have to do is reach out and grab it. It is at hand. You have access to this grace in which you are standing. You're standing in the middle of it. This beauty of creation, this world that God made and fashioned that has been scourged by sin, but has also experienced the first fruits of the resurrection through Jesus. That's what we just finished celebrating in the Easter season. And now we are standing smack in the middle of it. And all we have to do is reach out and take hold of the relationship that is being handed to us should we have the courage to step out and grab it. He says, not only that, but we even boast of our, oh, oh, I missed a piece. He said, we have access to this grace in which you stand. And now we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we can even boast of our afflictions. Knowing that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, and proven character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Even in the midst of trial, we can still hope and trust in the grace that is surrounding us. And what Paul is trying to say to you is that when you look at it, creation and you look at it, the relationships in your life, be it your relationship with God, your spouse, your friends, your parents, your kids, your coworkers, whatever it is, all we tend to see so often is the brokenness and the way in which we are irreconciled with each other and which we're at each other's throats and everything else. And Paul is saying, if you realized the sheer grace that you are standing smack in the middle of and how even through the affliction, even through the challenges, those are actually there so that God can produce character and character can prove endurance and endurance gives hope and hope does not disappoint because the craftsman that created all of this has a master plan. You know, I was giving a talk somewhere else in Colorado actually last night, and I was reflecting on the nature of identity and the fact that we live in a world right now in which and I was speaking to, to college age students and I've been working with them all summer up at Camp Point too. It's, it's what I do all year here. But I was reflecting on the nature of identity and how we are in this really new stage of history in which the world is trying to lie to us and particularly to our young people about identity. And uh, I was telling this famous story of John Paul II and how he has this famous line when he went back to Poland that was still suffering under the weight of communism. And he said this, this great line, you are not who they say you are. Let me show you who you are. Let me remind you of who you are. And I've always told this story to young people and reflected on how, you know, the world is constantly sort of lying to us about our true identity and our value and our dignity and our worth and, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And I thought about that kind of freshly this summer as I began to share it with our Camp Voitiwa staff. And I realized that we've actually entered into a new chapter of a lie in modernity and in, in this current, not even in modernity, but I mean the last couple of years. And now, and I don't want to get into politics or sexual things, but we, we live in this world in which our young people are being taught, you don't have an identity. It's not as if we're being lied to about our identity. We're being told we don't have one. You, your job is to determine your gender or your identity or your sexuality or whatever else it is, which sort of presupposes that there is not a God who has an ultimate design for you. That might be hard to find. There might be challenges and heartache and difficulties in discovering that. But we don't really have a world that believes there is a plan for our lives and there is a God who has set forth a path for us. 
And if we're told that we don't really have an identity, it's our job just to create it, figure it out. You decide what your own identity is because there is no master plan. There is no grand narrative. You just have to figure it out for yourself. That is one of the most disempowering things I can imagine for anybody. And the idea that, again, I'm getting at through these readings is that the artist has a craft that he has perfected. It is a skill. And if we can gain the skill, learning from the master to discern creation for what it is, to see nature for what it is, to see our own bodies for what they are, to see the people around us for whom they are, then we can begin to gain the skill of chokmah that allows us to see the world for what it is, which will allow us to see God for who he is. Who is the master craftsman that literally looks at us and laughs in delight because of the beauty that is us. And Paul says it's going to be hard and there's going to be challenges and there's going to be strife and turmoil. But all of those things are meant to produce endurance and character and ultimately hope. And we, quite frankly, live in a world that has lost all hope. And frankly, we have a bunch of Christians myself oftentimes included, that tend to lose hope. And if we, the people who are called to hope most, have lost hope, then a hopeless world doesn't stand a chance. That takes us to the gospel. And in the gospel, we're in John chapter 16, which is kind of smack in the middle of what's called the farewell discourse. And this is as Jesus, after the Last Supper, it might be kind of uh, right afterwards, before the Passion, he hasn't gone to the garden yet. And he's describing sort of at length to his disciples about what is to come, what is about to happen. And he's kind of scolding them at times, and he's warning them at times, and he's trying to comfort them at times. It's a long discourse, but he's describing what it is that's about to happen and really trying to show that they actually don't fully understand. Um, But he begins to speak here about the Holy Spirit, and he says to his disciples, he says, look, I've got a whole lot more to tell you. There's a lot more to what I've been trying to unpack about what is about to happen, literally starting tomorrow, right, for him as the passion begins. He says, I got a lot more to tell you, but you can't bear it now. Or some translations say, you just can't hear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He won't speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and he will declare the things that are coming. He will glorify me, says Jesus, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the father has is mine. For this reason, I told you that he will take uh, from what is mine and declare it to you. So he's like, look, there's a lot more stuff I want to tell you, but you guys can't bear it now. And I think part of the reason they can't bear it is because they're still smack in the middle of it. And this, I was kind of asking the question earlier about why it is that Jesus sends the Spirit in the way that he does. Because think about it, right? He says, uh, well, we know the Spirit is already present. And he's referred to the Spirit before in the gospel. The Spirit is, is there. And the Spirit, even in the Old Testament, is present. It comes to rest on kings and prophets and different people for times, right? The Spirit has been around from the beginning. It's floating over the face of the waters in creation. It's always been there. But Jesus can't send the Spirit in his role as the paraclete. You've heard that term, right? Paraclete um, is one of the ways we refer to the Holy Spirit. It comes from two Greek words, para and kaleo, which means literally to walk beside. So Jesus says, look, the Spirit's here, but I can't send him in the way that he is going to walk beside you in his role as paraclete, para kaleo, until I have returned to the Father. Until I have finished what I have yet to do. So earlier in the gospel, John explained that the spirit has not yet been given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. He says that in chapter seven. And 
I was reading a commentary, one of my favorite commentaries. It's by a guy named Roddy Whitaker. Um, he's got a great, long, dense book on John. But he he points out that the role of the Spirit is to interpret and to bear witness to Jesus and his revelation of the Father. And so the idea is until Jesus has completed this revelation, the Holy Spirit is not able to do its job because he doesn't have the full revelation to work with yet for what's going to be given to us. And so the idea is it's better for the disciples that Jesus goes because he keeps saying to them during the farewell discourse, I'm going to go away from you. You're not going to see me and I'm going to go to the crucifixion. All these things are going to happen and they're freaking out and they don't understand. They're like, what do you mean you're going? What, what do we do? How does, it, how does that work? And they're, they're flipping out. And Jesus is trying to say, no, it's better that I go because this will be the completion of my work on your behalf and, and on behalf of the whole world, Right. And if I complete this, once I go through my passion and I am crucified, which I know is going to happen, and I rise from the dead glorified, and then after 50 days, I ascend to my father. Uh, Sorry, after 40 days, right? I ascend to my father and I am seated at the right hand of the father. Like we've said on this podcast, the moment that my divine liturgy is complete, then I can send the spirit. And then he'll come and his job again is to go back and reveal to you what has just happened. So why is it that Jesus says to his disciples that they can't bear it yet? Because they're right in the middle of it. And in a certain sense, one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us, and you kind of see this borne out with the disciples and the early church and Acts of the Apostles, one of the things that the Holy Spirit gives us is in a matter of speaking the gift of hindsight, right? Because the, the apostles, when they're smack in the middle of this, the crucifixion hasn't happened. It's purely an abstraction. They don't know what it means that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. They don't know he's going to ascend to the Father. They don't know what he's talking about because they haven't experienced it yet. But they're going to be given this gift of interpretation to look back and remember that moment. You can imagine John at some point remembering with the gift of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, saying, oh, wait a second, when we were at dinner that night, right before he was crucified, and we were doing all this stuff, and he said that stuff, and he washed our feet, and we had the thing, and he said that, and I didn't get it now, but oh, now I get it. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of John and in the life of the apostles, to interpret to them what has been revealed. And what was revealed was Jesus's life-saving work. God, the word who proceeds from the mouth of God, who is active in creation, who delights in all of us, who took it upon himself to take on our flesh, to come and be one of us, to die on our behalf, to rise again and destroy death and all of the consequences that we wrought in this world so that he could ascend to the Father and be seated, showing it's completed, and that now, now, you have access. You have access to the gallery. You have access to the artwork and you have access to the artist and not only access to him, but you've been given the Holy Spirit who can help you to understand him because access and understanding are kind of distinct, right? The apostles spent three years with Jesus. They had full access, right? They walked with him. They questioned him. They hung out with him, but they didn't understand him. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came to enliven their minds that they understood the one that they were with. Because you can be with someone and not really understand them. But to understand someone who you are with is to enter into deep relationship. 
And then we begin to tap into what the Trinity is, which is relationship. The love of God the Father for his Son. The love of the Son back to the Father. The love relationship between them, so real it's the Holy Spirit. And that love relationship between Father and Son being poured out on us so that not only can we understand where we come from and who we are and be given an interpretive guidebook to understand what it means to be a human being in dark times, but we get to tap into the relationship. We get to be caught up in the Trinity because the Trinity came down to us. Because God came down, we can be lifted up. Because God came down, we can be lifted up. And that means all of creation, all of the artistry that God has formed and fashioned now takes on a whole new meaning. And the reflection that is creation, the reflection of God, now has a veil lifted from it. And we get a little bit closer to the life of God that we get to enter into. That, I fear, to be very honest with you, was a bit of an abstract podcast. And maybe that's by design because as I'm going through these readings and I'm reading these things, the Holy Spirit is hard to understand because it's hard to kind of wrap your brain around the nature of a relationship. It's hard to wrap your brain around the nature of artistry and craftsmanship because there's something kind of wordless about that. There's something, I mean, you, you, there's no instruction book that you can buy on Amazon that will teach you step by step how to be a brilliant, brilliant artist. You can get an instruction book that kind of teaches you skills and gives you techniques, and that's very good. But there's something about knowing and being in a relationship with artists and learning from an artisan that actually can teach you about artistry. You can't learn about artistry, I don't think, in... Uh, in, in a void, without a relationship. And that's kind of what God is saying through this. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Trinity, this is such a profound mystery. And we talk about that, and I was the kind of kid who, when I was little, and I would ask these difficult questions, and I would always get the answer, well, it's a mystery. I always hated that. <laughs> I always was frustrated when the church talked about things as mysteries, because I, was, I thought that was code for the church to just say, stop asking questions because we don't know the answer. But that's not what a mystery is. A mystery is not the sense that God is keeping things from us. A mystery is the sense that God wants to reveal things to us. It's like a mystery novel. And when you read a mystery novel, you actually have to read the whole thing because on every page, a different piece of the mystery will be revealed. And you'll begin to connect dots and see things in new light. If you watch a movie, a a mystery movie or a TV show or a book or something like that, you have to stick with it and follow the narrative Because the way that mysteries work, it will reveal things that were earlier concealed. That's why the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Trinity rather, is a mystery. Not because we're meant to not understand it, but because it is so profound and so big and so artistic that we have to live out the story to begin to tap into the mystery so that it can be revealed to us and so that we can live in the midst of it. Because that's who the Trinity is. The relationship that created us for the sake of being back in relationship with him, with God. The God who loves us, the God who delights in us, the God who laughs and giggles when he thinks about us. Which, even as I say it, that sounds weird. But that's kind of what we're told. So, 
That's all I got this week, you guys. Um, I'll be back next week with Father Peter, and hopefully we'll be a little more in concrete, a little bit less abstract, but maybe that was a good thing this week. We are so profoundly grateful for you. I hope you're having a wonderful summer, and we will be back next time. Please keep us in your prayers. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.